Uh, Take your Bibles, turn to John chapter 4 this morning, the book of John chapter 4. How many of you guys have a love-hate relationship with electronic devices? Anybody out there like that? (laughs) Wow, that got almost everybody there. That's pretty good. Mine was airing more on the hate side this week. Um, Part of it is I just need to take the time and get some things switched from one computer to another, but um, I was Thursday, I had a really good day in the office, and uh, the Lord just directed, and I was making good progress on the message, and had things pretty well laid out, and so that freed me up on Friday to do some other things, and I got back Friday evening, and I was working on something, I tried to open a different document with that program, and I shouldn't have, and also my computer just went, boop, and it was gone. And I thought, okay, this happened before, I'm sure it's saved, it'll no, no problem. I came up with backups, and the one that I needed, my message was gone. It just wasn't there. And so I had a little, little time of crying, um, and I, I'll be honest, my response wasn't spiritual to start with. <laughs> um, the Lord got me back to where I needed to be. It's like, the Lord has a reason. Those things don't just happen arbitrarily. Uh, we, if we can trust God in the big things of life, we can trust God in the little things of life, too. And uh, it was good, and I got to do business with the Lord. I spent a little extra time in prayer and said, what do you want me to rework? Uh, what's different? What needs to be changed? And uh, so I reworked a few things, and the Lord gave me recall on things I think that needed to be here. So uh, we'll see where this goes. Um, but anyway, that's a good motivation for me to be a little more careful with how I, how I save things and make sure it's there. I've, my buddy Scott down in Polson said he emails his message to him. As soon as he gets it done, he sends it to his email. And then he's always got a digital copy there if something were to go wrong. And I said, you know, that's a pretty good idea. Um, pretty good idea. Well, I have enjoyed the study of 1 John again. Uh, for those of you that are visiting with us, we're in a longer series, but this, this focal point right now is on reaching out to the lost in our community and seeing the world the way Christ sees them. And we're looking at different accounts in Scripture, different gospel encounters. Uh, right now, where Jesus is interacting with the lost, but we'll find others where others are involved with that as well. And uh, I've, enjoyed, I've enjoyed my study. We spent quite a bit of time building up the historical and, and biblical context of the passage. And I hope in doing that it helped you to, to have a little deeper understanding of what really was going on because it plays such a large role in this account. Uh, we see Jesus Christ intentionally traveling by way of Samaria up to Galilee. And I don't believe it was chosen that route out of convenience, even though it was the shortest route. I don't think it was chosen just out of expedience, even though it did avoid having to deal with Herod if he'd have gone the other way through Perea. No, I think he chose it for a higher purpose. He said, I must needs go through Samaria. Why? Because he had a divine appointment with a sinful woman by the well of Jacob, and he was compelled to fulfill that appointment. And we saw in the passage as he's fulfilling that appointment, as he's listening to this woman and interacting with her, he patiently leads her to saving faith in her Messiah. It's a wonderful passage. And we don't have time to review the whole thing, but let me just do a paragraph synopsis here if you'll bear with me as you remember the encounter. Jesus arrives at the well of Jacob. It's probably 6 o'clock in the evening. They've been traveling all day. It's about a 20-mile walk to get up there. When's the last time you walked 20 miles? (laughs) Been a little while probably for most of us. Uh, I think we'd be tired. We'd be hot, dusty, worn out, and all of that. But still, we see him now there initiating conversation with this woman. And through the course of that conversation, he clearly presents himself as the only one that can take care of her sin and as the only one that can satisfy the incredible longings within her soul. 
We see her attempts to distract and to challenge and to change the subject and even kind of pick a fight at a couple points here in the conversation. But Jesus still persisted, and he continued on with his discussion. And then that anticipated moment came where the dots connect and the pieces come together and the lights turn on, and she recognizes Jesus as her Messiah. What an incredible passage. And then we see her faith in action as she drops her water pot, temporarily forgetting her physical needs and racing back to the village to share Jesus Christ with those there that need to see him as well. It's an incredible divine appointment. And I am convinced as we work through this today that we have divine appointments as well. I believe God has saved us and he's called us and he's equipped us and he has people that he wants us to reach. We have divine appointments as well, that God has ordained for us, appointments he expects us to keep. Would you agree with me that there are more people in Columbia Falls and our surrounding area here that God wants to bring to himself? Absolutely. Or else we wouldn't be here. Jesus Christ would have come back already if there was nobody else that he wanted to see saved. I said this before, and I, and I know you've heard me say it. I, I struggle in the area of evangelism. It's not something that comes naturally to me. And maybe I could even say it as far as maybe I'm not gifted in that area. Um, so is this something that we can just leave to the Bill Jenkins of the world or the Monty Levels or the Rick McLeans of the world, people that really are, that seem to be gifted in this area? Can we just leave it to them? Well... I guess that would be the easy way out. The thought of God's gifted them, let's let them do it. I'll just work over here in other areas where God's gifted me. And that sounds plausible and it sounds logical. My question, is it biblical? I think we understand the answer to that question. Maybe we should word it this way. Does the fact that I may not be gifted in the arena of evangelism absolve me of my responsibility to fulfill my commission for evangelism? I think we know the answer to that. We have an obligation still to go. No matter how we perceive our gifts or lack of gifts in that area, God has commanded us to go to the uttermost parts of the world as a church with the gospel. And here in Columbia Falls First Baptist Church, we're really good at the, at the, at the world perspective, at reaching the world. We support missionaries all over the world, and I praise the Lord for that. And we're invested in their lives. We've taken trips to visit them on different fields. We were up in Eureka uh, this week helping with that and being there for the groundbreaking ceremony a couple weeks before that. We're doing a pretty good job when it comes to reaching our world. Where we struggle is reaching our Jerusalem and our Judea and our Samaria. And this is the area I think God's working in my heart with. We get the fact that God so loved the world. But sometimes we don't see as clearly that the world is made up of women at the well. Individual people that have individual souls that will one day enter eternity. And many of these souls live right here in our Flathead Valley. And we need to be faithful to get the gospel to them. So I guess the next question is this. How do we move from God so loved the world to God so loved my neighbor to God so loves my coworker, my friend at school, my barber? I don't have to worry about that one much anymore. Some of you still do. My mechanic, my doctor, the man who walks by my house every day, the lady that I see sitting back here on her little walker outside the senior center uh, as I drive by, uh, the person that greets me and I walk into the beehive. How do I get my focus on those people? Not just God so loves the world in general, but God loves these people individually. How do I get my focus on that again? That's my goal this morning is to get our minds thinking in that direction. 
To move from this story we see in John chapter 4 to practical illustrations and applications that will better equip us and motivate us to fulfill the divine appointments God has waiting for us. We're going to look at this over two weeks. We're not going to get it all done in one. I'm going to try to hone in on one particular concept today, and then we'll finish it again next week. So here's the first truth as we're trying to work through this. Number one, our primary goal in witnessing must be to present Jesus Christ. That's our primary goal. That's our object. That's where we need to try to get. That's what this woman did. That's what Jesus did with the woman. In fact, the whole conversation in John chapter 4 was designed to help this lady see who Jesus was. Work through the passage with me here just real quickly. It's interesting to see the development of her understanding. What was her first perspective? She's walking to the well and she sees a stranger there. And her first perspective was he's a weary traveler. He's been walking. He's, he's tired. He's worn out. And then as they begin to have interactions and and they're having a conversation, she realizes that he's Jewish. And not only Jewish, he's male. And not only male, he's a rabbi. And those were not good first impressions on her part. And it put her on the defensive. But the more she talked with him, she realized that he was different than any other Jew she'd ever met. and, And she saw that he was a Jew, but one that acted differently. That, I think, was a turning point in the conversation. She goes on and she compares him to Jacob. She sees him as one comparable to Jacob. Then as we see in the passage where Jesus points out that she uh, has had five different husbands and the one she's married to now is not her husband. Remember that passage? She realizes that he's a prophet of God. You see how she's growing in her understanding of who Jesus is. And then at the very end, uh, in verse 25, she said, the Messiah is going to come and straighten us all out. And Jesus said, I'm your Messiah. And she sees him as her Messiah and trusts him as her Savior. The people that we interact with today are going to have preconceived ideas of who Jesus is. Would you agree with that? They're going to come to the table as we're talking to them with some ideas of who Jesus is. It's our job to bring them along in their understanding from where they are, meet them at that point, and bring them to where they need to be, where they understand the truth of who Jesus is. I think we might be surprised a little bit how people view Jesus Christ today. Uh, People that may not have been in church their whole lives, uh, they view him differently than we do. And that's a really good starting point. In fact, one of, the, um, one of the models that I've seen as far as evangelism, uh, their first two questions as they're interacting with people, number one is, do you have any religious beliefs? That just gets the ball going in that direction. And the second one is, who is Jesus to you? What do you think about Jesus? Uh, what do you know about him? What do you think about him? And it's a good starting point where they share that, and now, now we know where they're at, and we know how we can help them get to where they need to be. What shapes our view of Jesus? Well, lots of things. For many of us, we had a childhood exposure to Jesus Christ. Aren't you thankful for that? Maybe you were in Sunday school from the time you were just little. I was. I heard the name Christ, uh, Jesus Christ as early as I can remember in my life. But not everybody has that background. But that's going to affect it. Your religious background will affect it. Your positive and negative encounters with the church or with Christians, that will affect your perspective of Christ. The news and media Uh, watching movies and TV is going to give you a perspective of Jesus. If you live in this valley, you see signs everywhere, all around, right? That's going to shape your perspective of Jesus. Maybe negative circumstances or, or hard times that you've gone through, will that shape your perspective of Jesus and God? Absolutely it will. And it's our job to help people get from that point to seeing who Jesus really is. How do we do that? That's what we'd like to explore today. Number one, we do it with our lives. The way that I live my life can direct people to Jesus. It can give them an accurate representation of who Jesus is. 
And we'll do this in a couple of ways. Number one, we must be different, just like Jesus was, first of all, in our attitudes. Our attitudes need to be different. As we went through this story in John chapter 4, did you notice how Jesus was not bound by the prevailing attitudes of the day? Culture was, was forcing people in one direction, and Jesus was not bound by that. And, and in this context, we see that he was a man and she was a woman, and yet he spoke to her. That doesn't sound like a big deal to us. We'll see why it's a big deal here in just a little bit for them. But he was a Jew and she was a Samaritan, and yet he was willing to drink from her pitcher? And that was something that was unheard of in that day. He was a prophet, she was a sinner, and yet he did not condemn her. He wasn't bound by those prevailing attitudes. Unfortunately, the disciples were. The disciples were bound by that. Look down in verse 27. Jesus and this woman have finished their conversation, and and now the disciples are coming back. In verse 27, it says, Upon this came his disciples and marveled, what? That he talked with the woman. And the word marveled there, I think a better way to say it was they were shocked. They were dumbfounded that he would be having a conversation with this lady. They were shocked that he spoke with the woman. And again, we don't see it as 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 big of a deal today as they did at that point, but this was totally contrary to their customs. Even today in Middle Eastern countries, uh, this is a big deal. If a man, uh, one of the quotes I read, if a man even were to meet his wife in the street, he does not speak to her. Wow. That's a little different than the culture that we live in today. Uh, For the Jewish people, it was considered unseemly, even inappropriate to be seen talking with a woman in a public place. This is their culture. This is where they're coming from. And the disciples were Jewish through and through. One Jewish canon that I read said this, Let not a man talk with a woman in the streets, even with his wife, and there is no need to say with another man's wife. (laughs) And by the way, the bar was set even higher if you were a religious person, if you were a rabbi. There were six things which would bring reproach upon a rabbi, and one of them was this, Do not multiply discourse with a woman, with your wife, and much less with your neighbor's wife. At whatsoever time a man multiplies discourse with a woman, he is the cause of evil to himself. (laughs) Wow. You start to see where we would never think about that just reading through this passage, but it goes on. He ceases from the words of the law and at last shall go down into hell. That's how serious they they viewed this. I don't know if the disciples would have read all those writings and known all of that, but that's the prevailing attitude of the day at that point. Now, let's back up just for a little bit. Is it good to be careful in this area? Is Is it wise to be prudent? Absolutely. It's important that we don't place ourselves in a place of temptation or even false accusation. Uh, as, as a man and as a pastor, I'm careful with that. I've been careful with that with the youth group. I'm never alone in a room with one of the teenage girls. If I'm dropping off kids after youth group, the last person in the car is not going to be a teenage girl. I'm being careful with that. That's wisdom there. There's prudence there. But do you see how these, these guys took this idea that really wasn't a bad idea? It started out good, but it quickly morphed into something totally unrecognizable. And something totally false. And it went against what Jesus was trying to accomplish there uh, with, this, with this lady and here on this earth. Um, so they were shocked that he talked with the woman. Secondly, they were shocked that he spoke with the Samaritan. And we don't have to delve into this quite as much because we've talked about it before. But racial purity was a big deal for the Jewish people. And rightly so. We can find scripture to back up their perspective, can we not? Where Jesus said, I don't want you to intermarry with these, false, with these other, with other groups. Their religion is going to come and take you away from the true God. So be careful in this area. There's scripture to back that up. 
But in their zealousness for purity, it caused them to miss some other lessons that Jesus wanted to teach as well. Jesus came to do what? To seek and to save that which was lost. And there's a change from the Old Testament way of looking things to the New Testament way of looking things. And Jesus is ushering in that change. And I want to be careful, but no matter how moral the intentions of the disciples were, the bottom line is that their mindset was completely wrong. They were avoiding this lady because of her gender and because of her race. And they were not giving her the gospel based on those two things. Wow. That shows how serious it is. Now, I don't know if I put them in your notes there, but let me just give you several references. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation. What does it say next? For the Jew first, but also to the Greek, right? To the Gentiles. Now, that being said, there is progressiveness to revelation. In other words, we have the completed word of God. When the disciples were here with Jesus and they were going through and they were here in Sychar at, the, at Jacob's well, did they have the book of Romans? No. That wasn't written yet. It was written by Paul quite a bit later, right? Uh, years after that. So we're looking back on it with a completed revelation. My point in all this is Jesus was modeling some of this change that the apostles are writing about later on in Scripture. Um, if you could go down to Romans chapter 3, let's look there here quickly. I want us to see this progression because I think it's helpful. Um, Maybe not necessarily just in the idea of race, but as we look at some other things here in just a little bit. Romans chapter 3, Paul is advancing this argument that, that everybody is a sinner. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or you're a Gentile. On verse 9, what then are we better than they? Are the Jews better than the Gentiles? No, in no wise. For we have before proved both Jew and Gentile that they are all under sin. And as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understands. There is none that seeks after God. They're all gone out of the, of the way. They've all become together unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. So that's the argument that Paul's making here to start with. Let's go on down and look in verse 19. At the end of that verse, it says that all the world may become guilty before God. Uh, The Jews, they were trying to advance and say, we're in a better position than the Gentiles are. Paul's saying, no, you're not. All the world stands guilty before God. And you go on down to verse 29. Paul says, is he, is God, the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. So it's this idea that Jesus Christ came to seek and to save that which was lost, both Jew and Gentile. And now as we come to the church age, what's different for us? Well, Galatians chapter 3 gives us an interesting perspective. Verses 26 through 28, we are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many as you have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Notice what he says next. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither bond nor free. There's neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. When God looks at us as believers, he doesn't see men and women. He doesn't see races. He doesn't see class systems. He sees us individually. And the stereotypes that we see here that the disciples have don't exist in the mind of God. I made a comment last week that this may not really be an issue for us here in Columbia Falls. And what I meant by that is, We don't have this issue of Jews and Samaritans, right? When's the last time that you read about that in an editorial in the paper? (laughs) Somebody talking about the Jews versus the Samaritans. That's not a big deal. But my question for it is this, and I don't want to just totally leave the idea of race. You know, in Columbia Falls, we're becoming more of a melting pot. As people are moving to this valley, we're starting to see more and more people of different backgrounds. And we're seeing people of different, uh, from different countries. And we need to be careful that we're not bound by some of these stereotypes as well. 
I can't avoid somebody with the gospel simply because of the color of their skin or the country of their origin. And if that's an issue I struggle with, that's not biblical. I need to work on that before my Heavenly Father. But you know there's other areas that I think we can deal with. I might be getting myself in trouble here, but I I think this is one of the reasons God may have uh, had me rework some things in this message. It may not be an issue of race for us here in Columbia Falls, but maybe there's some other areas where we're struggling, where our ideology causes us to overlook somebody with the gospel. And if that's the case, we've got to work on it just like the disciples had to. Maybe there's another label that you struggle with, a crowd that you avoid or that might rub you the wrong way and cause you to overlook them with the gospel. And I want to be careful here because sometimes the terms that we use, I don't mean them to be derogatory, but they, that's, it's labels that we use. There's a blue-collar crowd. Uh, here in Columbia Falls, we've often been known as the blue-collar area of our valley. Uh, we had the aluminum plant, and we had Plum Creek, and we were, we were a manufacturing area, and we've been known that way for years as opposed to Whitefish or Big Fork or even Kalispell. Uh, things are changing a little bit, but there's a blue-collar crowd. They're hard-working. They're hard-playing. They'll give you the shirt off their back. It's that dirt-under-your-fingernails kind of people, but they work hard. But on the flip side of that, if you've been in that environment working with them on the job sites, you know there can be a point where sometimes they're a little crass and they're crude. Sometimes the things that they say are distasteful, the language that they might use, the stories that they might tell. And we can be offended in our sensibilities because of what they're saying and because they're doing, and we can kind of write them off. And that should not happen. Folks, they need Jesus Christ too. I don't know a better way to say this. The welfare crowd is not the best term. But the indigent, the homeless, is that a big deal in our society right now and in our valley? It is. We had somebody that was killed in Kalispell simply because, from what I understand, simply because they were a homeless person. And folks, that's wrong. And it's easy for us to look at them and say, well, they're homeless, therefore they're lazy. We don't know what all's going on in their lives. We don't know what caused that to happen in their lives. I deal with a lot of people along this line. Our church is front and center. <laughs> I get phone calls every week, somebody wanting help with this and help with that. And I've helped enough of them to know that there are many of them that just don't want the kind of help that they need. It's unfortunate, but that's where they're at. But I don't broad brush everybody because of that stereotype and that perspective. I've got to, if I see them flying the sign on the corner of the the street there looking for money, I can immediately write them off, and I shouldn't do that. That's an area that I think I need to work with. Often there's more to the story, reasons why they might be down on their luck. Maybe for you it's the white-collar crowd. Now, again, we're using another term. These people have money. They sit in their corner office and they don't do anything and I'm out there slaving away under the hot sun. (laughs) Maybe it irks you that they're referred to as professionals. (laughs) There's a lot of money moving into our valley right now. People that are living here but working remotely. And it can be hard for us as we see them drive by in their fancy rigs realizing that we can't afford that and they can And then they buy up things that we can't afford, and it raises the prices for all those of us that are living here, and our taxes are going up. And and all those emotions and things can come into our minds, and it can cause us to be jaded in our perspective towards them. And folks, we've got to be careful with that. How about the environmental crowd? 
Again, I'm using terms that we hear all the time, tree huggers or wolf lovers or environmental activists. And we've got forest fires raging all about us. And from our perspective, some of us, we understand that there's some, some things going on with the Forest Service and, and, and things that there's lawsuits. They're not allowed to log where they need to. And in our, in our minds, we could say, if they could do all that, we wouldn't have these fires. And Darren and Jill's home wouldn't be in danger. And Mitchell's wouldn't have had to evacuate. We can make all those concepts and tie those things together. But it's broad brushing people into a group that may or may not be accurate, and into a group that still is made up of individuals that need Jesus Christ. I use this term, and I'm using it carefully. You'll see it's in quotes, the California crowd. You know what I'm saying? It's a term that's been given to anybody that's just moved here. (laughs) Guess what? We all came from somewhere, (laughs) right? And some of us more recently than others. I heard somebody say once, everybody wants to be the last person in. (laughs) It's a great way of looking at it. My daughter's moved up to Alaska. It's taken her time to to assimilate to the group up there, and it takes time to be accepted. But this term is something that's been given to those that, you know, you've not not been here for 20 years, so you're not local, and you don't matter. It's a term for anybody that's come from somewhere else, and, and we've seen this huge influx in population over the last two to three years. And it's affecting people. I think there's many of you that would agree with me. You've had conversations with people, interacting with them. They're new in the valley. And one of the common questions is, hey, where are you from? And they're almost embarrassed to say. I was working on the job up in Eureka on Tuesday uh, with a gentleman that uh, is from, the, from that area there. He's actually originally from California. He's lived in both places. And we were just talking and getting to know each other, working together, having a great time in the relationship. And I happened to throw out, where are you from? And he just stopped working. And he goes, I'm afraid to say. And if he's afraid to say that, thinking that I'm going to judge him based on the place he's coming from, I'm not demonstrating the love of Christ. And it bothered me that he had that thought. And I had to reassure him that, no, that's not going to change my perspective of you. I realize it's hard when people move here and they begin to change our way of life and they begin to do things differently than the way we've done it. I'm not saying that those thoughts and those emotions are incorrect. I get that frustration. But what I'm saying is we need, to, we need not change our ideology. Much of our ideology comes from a biblical worldview, I believe. right? So I don't necessarily change that. But if I'm treating somebody with disdain because of their background or the crowd that they run with, then I'm being wrong. I need to be careful how I articulate my ideology through my attitudes and through my actions. You know, folks, it doesn't take but a second to alienate somebody to the point where I may never have an opportunity to share the gospel with them again. And we've got to be careful with that. I'm speaking to myself here just as much as to you today. The flip side of that, I'm not going to have common ground with everybody, even in these different groups. I think God knows that. And he may cause somebody else to have a divine appointment with an individual that I might rub the wrong way or that might rub me the wrong way. God's bigger than all of that. But every one of these people in these groups that I've described needs Jesus Christ. And we need to learn to put our stereotypes aside for the cause of Christ and for the good of the gospel. If I look on a group with disdain and it prevents me from sharing Christ, I'm no different than the disciples in this story who bought into the stereotypes of their day. Jesus Christ was different. And because he was different, it gave him audience with a woman that he never would have had audience with before. So we must be different in our attitudes. Secondly, we must be different in our actions. Uh, Turn with me quickly to Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Keep your finger in John. 
Philippians 1, 27. Uh, we see a scriptural mandate for this, and I'm not going to spend much time here because I preached a whole message on it not that long ago, and you guys remember so well, you can probably even give me the outline, right? Now you're afraid I'm going to ask. I'm not. It's okay. I couldn't give you the outline either. Uh, Philippians chapter 1, look in verse 27, just the first part of this verse. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Here's the mandate for our actions. Only let your conversation be as it becomes the gospel of Christ. Only. This must be a priority. Conversation is the idea of my manner of life. It's the word politu. It's my citizenship. Realizing I've got a higher citizenship than this earthly citizenship. And I'm supposed to live my life in such a way that it becomes the gospel of Christ. It makes the gospel of Jesus Christ look good. Be a living commercial for the character of Christ. Be a good representative of Christ. Represent properly. Live on this earth as a citizen of heaven. Let every area of my life conform to the gospel of Christ. Let nothing in my life contradict it. That's the idea behind this passage. And that's the mandate. My actions need to demonstrate Christ. Maybe let's follow that through with number two with some practical considerations. And this will be the end of the meddling part, all right? (laughs) Avoid labels. Avoid the stereotype. Look past the crowd and see the person. Wasn't it neat how Jesus did that on multiple occasions? Even the story we looked at with the raising of the widow's son there in the village of Nain, he comes up over the hill and he sees this whole funeral procession, this huge crowd, and they're all mourning. He doesn't just hone in on the crowd. What does he do? He focuses attention on the one that was really in need, the one that was hurting the most. Let's learn to see the individual and not the crowd. Let's remember that each person has a story. No matter where they're from or what their background is, We can connect on that level, and don't just assume based on the label. Learn to see people with perception. Secondly, number letter B, guard your first impression. Folks, our first impressions of people are very, very important. (laughs) I'll do one on me first. How's that? I used to have a T-shirt. We went through a little phase as a family where we bought T-shirts for each other. And I'll tell you, my wife's, it was, I'm silently correcting your grammar. <laughs> Ever seen that one? And uh, if you know her, she, you, know, you understand that. She doesn't look down on you and judge you, but she will, she'll, she'll think about it. Mine was, it was, uh, I'd agree with you, but then we'd both be wrong. How many of you guys like that shirt? Right? It's funny. It makes us laugh. And um, I don't know why they thought I needed that shirt. And my kids bought that one for me. But, um, and we laughed about it. We joked about it. And then I was wearing it one day around town. Different than if you're just with your family and at home. And I got to thinking, is that really the first impression that I want other people to have of me? That I'm arrogant and I think I'm always right and that as we talk, they're going to be wrong. And I, so I put that shirt away and I'm not wearing that shirt anymore. You know, it might even start a conversation. Somebody laughs, I'd say, that's funny, and then we can go from there. But the potential of it causing more harm wasn't worth me wearing that shirt. You know, if you've got a vehicle, and I hope nobody does, it, it, I'm sorry, the back of it says, smoke a pack a day. <laughs> and if you're local, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's not talking about cigarettes, right? It, is that going to limit your ability to have conversation with somebody? Probably could. We've got to think about these type of things from that level. What is it that you put on your social media? <laughs> Are you the person that has to comment on everything that comes down? The first thing that you think about, you just type it in, and away you go. Folks, let's be careful with that. The first thing you think of is likely not what you should be posting. 
especially if it's on a hot button topic. And by the way, this is just a comment for some of you older people out there, um, me being one of them. Sometimes people post on social media and it's tongue in cheek and it's sarcastic and it doesn't need a serious reply, okay? So just you know, think about that. Maybe there's a joke here that you're missing before you go and comment on that. Um, but I'm saying this in all seriousness. I just saw a post from someone that, that if I were to say the name, you guys would know. And it was politically motivated. And it was just, I'm just throwing this out here. But the way that it was said is going to alienate at least half of the people that read that post. Folks, it's not worth it to do that. What he said was not wrong. I didn't disagree with it. But if it limits my ability to share Christ with somebody, let's be careful with this. Let's guard those first impressions. I don't have to lead with the hot-button topic. What's my goal? It's to point them to Christ. Let's lead with Christ. Let us see here in practical considerations. Model your citizenship. Folks, our example is important. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Now let me just turn there quickly. And I realize we'd be pulling this verse. It's a, it's a bigger context here than what's involved, but I think it gives us the idea. Of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul says this in verse 2. You are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read of all men. For as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ, declared to be the epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshly tables of the heart. What's Paul saying? You are our epistle. Your life is an epistle. And you've heard it said that you might be the only gospel that some people ever read. It's important that we live our lives from that perspective and that we understand that. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1 says, Our lives should, it says, Paul says, Follow me as I follow Christ. And the idea here is our lives should direct people to Jesus. Jesus was different in his attitudes and he was different in his actions, and that gave him audience with this woman here in Samaria. And folks, I believe it'll do the same for us if we trust the Lord to give us those divine appointments. So we need to represent Christ, first of all, with our life. Secondly, we need to do it with our lips. Let's work through the last stage of this outline here today. Not only do we live a life that's different, secondly, we need to verbally tell people about Jesus Christ. It's not enough to simply model Jesus in our works. We must move beyond that and manifest Jesus with our words. At some point, we've got to open our mouths. We've got to say something out loud. We've got to tell them about Jesus Christ. Romans tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We see a personal example here in this story. Jesus had seven specific interactions with this woman here at the well of Sychar. Six out of those seven were specifically referring to Jesus Christ. He tied himself into into six of the seven aspects of this conversation. Look in verse 10. Jesus said unto her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, you would have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. He says, I am the gift of God. Jesus is the gift of God, and we can present people with that truth. Down in verse 14, uh, we read down there, Whosoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up unto everlasting life. Jesus will satisfy your soul. Jesus will satisfy your soul for eternity. He can give you everlasting life. In verses 16 and 18, as Jesus begins to tell her about her past and things that she didn't think anybody else knew, especially a stranger, he made it clear that he's omniscient, that he knows everything about her. He's revealing more about himself. He knows that she's a sinner, but he loves her anyway. What a tremendous truth that we can pass on. 
But as we move on, verses 21 and 22, we see that Jesus is the only way to the Father. Jesus said unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour comes when you'll neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. She was worshiping God in her own way. And then it goes on to say, um, the, I just lost my train of thought. Where am I at? Verse 22, you worship, you know not what. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. And we know what he meant by that. Salvation comes through the Jewish people because Jesus Christ was coming through the Jewish line. He's showing her that he is the one that's the way to the Father. In verse 23, God is a spirit and must be worshipped in truth. Uh, you've got to understand some things about the, the gospel before you can worship in truth. And then in verse 26, she sees that Jesus is God. He's the Messiah. Therefore, he too must be worshipped in truth as well. And so this idea, these interactions with Jesus, uh, verbally he's showing her who Jesus Christ is. What a great example. Letter B, there's also a reminder, a pertinent reminder, a theological reason for opening our mouths. I'm not going to spend a huge amount of time here, but you understand what I'm saying if I say natural or general revelation versus special revelation. Are you familiar with those terms? Uh, the idea of natural revelation or general revelation is what we see in nature that points us to God. What we can see around us that shows us there's a God and that he exists. Can you think of scriptures that back that concept up? Well, Psalm 19. The heavens do what? Declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. There's no language where this voice is not heard. Uh, I go to the book of Romans chapter 1 and verse 19 where he says the invisible things of, this, of God are seen through the things that God's created. And he goes on to say that because of this man is without excuse. So God has revealed himself through nature. And I think it goes on, we reveal Jesus Christ through our lives as well. I think you can make that connection. But is that sufficient to bring someone to saving faith in Christ? The answer to that question is no, because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And faith is necessary for salvation. At some point, they've got to make the connection between Jesus Christ, their sin, and salvation. And to do that, we've got to say something about it. Because they're not going to get that in the natural world. So there's a theological reason for us opening our mouths. I've given you some scriptures there that you can look up on your own and delve into. But this theological argument demands that we open our mouths. As we close this section, can I give you some practical encouragement that I think will help us? Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. I think all of us would say, well, maybe not. Maybe there's some here that are, that are bolder than I am. We might say that this is an area we struggle with. Speaking up, the, the, the testimony of my life, we're really good at that. But saying something out loud is a challenge for us. And sometimes the biggest thing that stands in our way is the idea of fear, the idea of shame. And, and Paul addresses this here in this passage with the young man Timothy. Let's pick up the reading in verse 6, where Paul says this, Wherefore I put thee in remembrance... That thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Be not therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner. But be thou partakers of the affliction of the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began." but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Folks, we don't have to be a prisoner of our fear when it comes to sharing our faith with other people. 
God saved us. It says that here in this passage, Jesus Christ has saved us. I want you to stop and think about that for a minute. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. God reached out to you and he saved you from that sin. And he made you a child of his own, a child of God. You and me were children of the king. What is there to be ashamed of? We should be rejoicing in that. We don't lord it over people, but we should be rejoicing in that. It's, not, it's a badge of honor. It's not a sign of shame. So God saved me, and because of this incredible act of love, now he constrains me, compels me to go and to share that with other people. Not only has he saved us, it says here he has called us. Look in verse 9, he has saved us and he has called us with a holy calling. He's drafted us to be on his team. (laughs) We're on his side now. We're on the winning side. What an incredible thought. We see, number three, that God empowers us. We see twice, uh, several times in this passage, the idea of power. He's not given us a spirit of fear, but of power. And later on in verse 9, he talks about the power of God. He's empowered us. My friends, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a powerful thing, and we can lay claim to that in faith as we share the gospel with other people. Look at what it does in verse 10. It's abolished death. It brought about life and immortality. That's the power of the gospel that God has given to us. We don't need to be ashamed. We don't have to be afraid. You see, number four, not only does God save us and call us and empower us, he also equips us. Back up to verse six. Wherefore, I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee. The gift of God. God has given each one of us gifts from the Holy Spirit. And we're to use these gifts to serve him and to to share the gospel with the lost. And the idea here is to stir them up. To fan the flame. I had some wet wood the other day, and I was trying to get a little fire going. This tells you how far back it's been since I've had a fire out here in my fire pit. But it was wet, and I was trying to get the thing going, and it was youth group, and I was trying to get it in a hurry, <clears throat> and it just wasn't going. You know what I did? I pulled out my, I pulled out my, weed, my leaf blower. I've got some little holes in the bottom around the rocks, and I just, I just turned that thing on and, and blew it right down there at the base of that. And boy, it didn't take but about 20 seconds, and I had a serious flame. Right? I fanned the flame. I stirred it up. And that's what God's saying here. Stir up the gift that's in you. With one another, help each other stir up the gift that's in them. We talked at the beginning of this message about how sometimes we don't feel gifted in this area. Maybe not, but why not use the gifts that God has given us to reach out in evangelism to the lost? It may take some creative thinking, but when we do it that way, it's going to come across naturally. I trust that's encouraging to you. God has given us the ability to do this. We can do this. If we'll trust God enough to reach out. As we wrap this up, just as Jesus had divine appointments to fulfill, I think God's given us similar appointments. We've got to be sensitive to the Spirit. He doesn't put them on your phone, on your calendar. (laughs) But the Holy Spirit does place them for us if we're sensitive to him and we're listening to his voice. As we seek to honor them, our goal must be to present Jesus Christ. To move people from their presuppositions about who Jesus is to a proper understanding of his true nature. And we do this through our life, through our attitudes and our actions. We also do this with our lips, verbally sharing the good news of the gospel. Oh, may God give us perception to see the divine appointments around us. And then may he give us compassion to fulfill them. Father, I thank you for your word today. I thank you for the text that we've looked at, this story. There's so many truths that we can take from it. And Father, I pray that you would help us to realize the importance of pointing people to you. Father, you are so much more important. Jesus Christ is so much more important than our ideologies and these hot-button topics that we can get distracted on. 
And Father, I pray that you would give us the ability to see people, individual people, not just their label or their stereotype, but to see them as a lost person for which you died. And Father, to overcome maybe even the struggles that we have, the frustrations that we have, and still be able to reach out to them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, help our lives to be different. Help them to point people to Christ, our attitudes and our actions. And then, Father, give us the courage to step out in faith and trust you enough to say a word for you. Father, the only thing you can't use are the words we don't say. Give us the courage to speak up for you and to represent Jesus Christ and to demonstrate him in our lives and in the words that we say. And, Father, for that, we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. As we close here this morning, I'm just going to ask a couple of questions, maybe some seed thoughts as you begin to think about how God's working in your heart and in your life. You can turn to 577 in your hymn book. My questions are these three quickly. Does your life accurately represent the character of Christ? (laughs) Can you legitimately say to somebody, follow me as I follow Christ? I trust that's true. Number two, are there folks that frustrate you and cause you to overlook them with the gospel? Well, if that's the case, ask the Lord to forgive you for that and ask him to help you truly see them in their lost condition. Put your opinions and your viewpoints in the background so that Jesus Christ can be in the foreground. Maybe you struggle in the area of fear and we give in to fear and in so doing we bail on an appointment that God might have placed in my life. You know, he'll forgive us for that too. And then we can just step up and say, God, give me the strength next time. Give me the ability to see it and give me the courage to follow through. Give me power and love and a sound mind. I don't know how God's working in your heart. Let him work, respond properly uh, and accurately as he works in your life today. Let's stand together and we'll sing 577 as we close.